ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's what we're looking at for the sermon today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to look at the importance of the direction of our faith. Where is our faith turned to? What's the direction? And along with that is purpose. And I found this great quote from Alice in Wonderland, which I have to tell you, and some of you are going to be so deeply offended by it. This is like my least favorite book ever. I, I had to read it in, in, in junior high, and I, I picked up the copy later, and there was a lot of things I read in junior high that later as an adult I realized, okay, they're actually really good. I, I picked it up, and I read it again as an adult. And I literally wrote on the first page, this is the worst book ever written. Don't read it again. Years later, I picked it up. I was like, I really need to give it another chance. And I saw that first page. I was like, nope. <laughs> I'm sorry if it's your favorite book. But it has a good quote. All that to say, that's a great opening, by the way. The Cheshire Cat says to Alice, if you don't know where you want to get to, then it doesn't matter which way you go. That's good. Rest of the book, not so much. But that's, that's, that, that's a good quote. If you don't know where you want to get to, then it doesn't matter which way you go. And I think we all struggle with this. I think throughout human history, we have struggled knowing where it is we want to get to. What's the direction we're supposed to go toward? So there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of different choices and different directions trying to find that direction that we want to go toward. Today... I think in our culture, the ultimate direction that people want to go toward is whatever makes them happy, whatever they define as their own personal fulfillment and happiness. Just live for yourself. That's, that's the direction. The problem with this is that that is no direction. That's literally any direction, and it's kind of choose your own direction. And the question is, Does this work? Is it right? And most importantly, is it what Scripture teaches? We're in this sermon series called Faith Out Loud as we walk through this short letter of 1 Thessalonians looking at Paul challenging these people. But as he's challenging them, ironically, he's also really encouraging them and saying, you guys are living your faith out loud. You are known for trusting in Jesus Christ. And that knowledge and that reputation of trusting in Jesus Christ had spread throughout their city, throughout the surrounding countryside, and throughout the surrounding area. They were living their faith out loud. They weren't just in their little holy huddles and keeping quiet about Jesus. Equally, they weren't just loud and obnoxious and brash. And we we talked about that in the first sermon. We'll look later on in the book that Paul actually, as he's challenging them and encouraging them and applauding them for living their faith out loud, he equally tells them to live a quiet life. And so so we're going to look later on in the series at how those two things go together. But today we're going to look at this direction of faith. And a lot of people would say, well, our faith should be directed toward ourselves, that we are Christians, we are religious, or whatever religion you might want to be, but faith is directed toward the self, what makes me happy and brings me fulfillment. There's a lot of different world religions you can look at that focus on the self, personal enlightenment, personal fulfillment. There are Christians 
whose faith, I would argue, is directed toward themselves. What makes me happy, what brings me joy, what gets me what I want. Now, I think in general, most of us would look at something and say, oh, faith directed towards self, that's, that's selfish. Like, I, I think there should be a little bit of a red flag that says, I, I don't think that's right. But then there's another option. Faith can be directed toward others. Well, let's help people. We are here to love people and to bless them and to help them and make a positive change in this world. And this sounds great. There's a lot of world religions that focus on this. Deny yourself and just help people and love people. There's a lot of Christians that focus on this and it looks great and it looks wonderful and it looks loving. But I want to argue today as we look at this text and what Paul says, we have to go even deeper. There is a better direction that is taught by Scripture. I was joking with my Sunday school class this morning. There were a lot of things. This was totally on accident. A lot of things in the Sunday school class that that are going to be repeated in this sermon. But Scripture teaches, and Paul's going to talk about here in the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, that the direction of our faith must be directed toward God. That the purpose for which we are trusting in God is for God's glory. The purpose for which we are seeking to help others is ultimately for God's glory. He is the ultimate direction and purpose for our faith. Now this has important implications. Obviously we should trust God. I think if if you're here in church, you kind of know that. Like faith is trusting God. But this has implications. It changes our priorities in our lives. It changes where we look for authority, what, what is able to tell us what is right and what is wrong. It changes what we submit to. It changes how we view and interpret who we are. What is a self? What does it mean to be a person? What is our identity? Having the direction of our faith be toward God changes our purpose for being alive. It changes how we view and value others and love them and care for them to understand that they're made by God for his glory. And so today we're looking at the first 16 verses of chapter 2. So we have a lot to cover. We're going to move quickly. But the context here, in case you're just joining us, the book of 1 Thessalonians is written to a group of believers, a church, that Paul had planted in in what we would kind of call Greece, Macedonia. Uh, He had come over there. He wanted to go somewhere else, but was prohibited. In fact, he says in Acts that the Holy Spirit kept him from going where he wanted to. And he was directed by this vision to go to Macedonia. And he goes there and he goes to a city called Philippi. We have the book Philippians written to them. And and people received Christ and it was great, but then there was all this uprising and he was run out of town. And then he comes to Thessalonica. It's great, people received Christ, but then he's run out of town again and persecuted. And a friend of his gets arrested simply because Paul was staying at his house. And Paul moves on to another city, the city of Berea, and and their people from Thessalonica, like they couldn't leave well enough alone, people that hated Paul, went from Thessalonica to Berea and rose up a whole bunch of trouble for Paul there, and he has to flee. He's put on a ship and leaves the area. So here he is, far away from them, wondering, man, these baby Christians... 
They're in a culture that doesn't support the gospel. I know that there are people in their city that are out to persecute any Christian, anybody that stands up for Jesus Christ. I wonder how they're doing. And after a while, Timothy, his friend, comes with a report. And we looked at that in chapter 1, that there are these people from Thessalonica that he was so worried about, thinking, I wonder if there's even still a church there. They are holding on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their faith has become known throughout the area. In fact, they're doing such a great job at living out their faith and evangelizing that Paul says, I don't even need to come back to that area. You guys are doing it. You're the witness for Jesus Christ. They've turned from their idols to trust in Jesus and living in the future hope of Christ's return. What a blessing. What a report. And and 1 Thessalonians is written in response to the report that Timothy has brought. But in our passage today, these 16 verses, there's another aspect, it seems, of what Timothy brought, which was that people had come into the Thessalonian church and were saying some pretty awful things about Paul. And so in these verses, Paul is going to answer some accusations and some false rumors that people were spreading about him. Now, this is tough because we're very much listening into one half of the phone conversation here, right? We don't hear the other half. We don't know exactly what these people were saying. We don't know exactly what Timothy reported. We know how Paul's responding to it. So we have to make some guesses here, but I think it's pretty obvious. But also as we walk through this, I don't want to just talk about Paul and his ministry. I I want us to see Paul's overarching attitude and passion, which is he wanted to live his life in the right direction. And one of the things he's being accused of is pleasing people or manipulating people and being selfish. And what he's going to say is, no, I am here to please God then I must please God rather than people. And so as we walk through this, we're going to see the importance of living a God-word or a God-focused life. We're going to see the importance of the family of faith in the church and then the priority and the authority of the word of God. So let's look at the first seven verses here as we deal with what does it mean to live a Godward life, having God as the center of our direction in everything that we do. This is not easy. It is out of sync with the world that we live in. It was out of sync with this world 2,000 years ago. You know, sometimes people say, oh, well, it was so much easier back in the day, back before. It wasn't, actually. It was really hard back then, too, which I find great comfort in because if this church in a culture that doesn't support them and actually persecutes them for what they believe, if they can be so on fire for Jesus Christ, then so can we. And we can keep living this attitude today. Let me read these first seven verses for us. He says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. 
You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or from anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. And I'm going to stop there at the beginning of verse 7. He starts by saying that his ministry there, his visit to them was not without results. Now, some of you might have a different translation. Uh, It might say not in vain. The Greek word literally just means empty. It was not empty. And, And in vain or without results are pretty good translations of that. But I can imagine Paul sitting there wondering how these Thessalonians are doing, hearing this great report and saying, wow, Look at the fullness of what the gospel of Jesus Christ has done in this very difficult situation. Look at the results. And Paul's not patting himself on the back here. He's saying, look at what God has done. Look at what the gospel has done. Paul explains why he says this. Because again, remember, underneath all of this are these kind of background accusations Paul's only trying to make much of Paul. He's only trying to get some money. He's only trying to get influence. He's just using you. And he's like, you know how we came to you. So we didn't come to you with pomp and circumstances. See, they had philosophers that would enter a a city with almost like parades, like, oh, the famous philosopher has come and you can pay and go see them and, you know, have them over for dinner and this is great. And, And there were people, that's how they made their money. Paul says that we didn't come to you like that. You know how hard it was. We came to you from a difficult situation after being treated outrageously in Philippi. We came with the help of God. Not only that, but we came to tell you the very thing that caused us to be mistreated. It says, we came willing to suffer to bring you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to his heart here. I think I see in Paul's heart as he writes this an amazing joy at what the gospel of Jesus Christ has done in the lives of these people that he loves so much. Now, Paul is looking at the Thessalonians and rejoicing that they're trusting in Christ, rejoicing in how they're living. But does that mean that the direction of his faith and his ultimate priority is the Thessalonians? Because it kind of seems that way. I did what I did for you for your benefit. Is that the primary direction? And the answer is no. And we see this in verse 3. He says in verse 3, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. And then later on he says uh, in verse 4, We are not trying to please people but God. He says, I didn't come there To please you. Now, did the Thessalonians get great benefit from Paul's gospel and from the missionary and the ministry there? Absolutely. But Paul says his ultimate direction, his purpose in going was for God's glory to please God. And here we see again some of these accusations as we look back to verse 3. One of them is this accusation that he's serving from impure motives. I talked about kind of there were well-known philosophers that were traveling and, you know, they didn't always live out what they taught. Uh, Some of them were getting pretty fat and wealthy off of what they were doing and they were just known for that. They took a lot of favors. They kind of raised up people to support them and people knew, some people, 
Well, they're just kind of a hypocrite. Other people, you know, they just want to jump on the bandwagon. Oh, he's the most popular teacher of this year. But this is what they're accusing Paul of. And he says, we didn't have this impure motive. We didn't come to you in error. We weren't trying to trick you to deceive them to get what he wanted. He says, here's why I came. Number one, God approved me. God had approved Paul. Now, how? Well, I think there's two ways. One, we know that Paul had a very unique calling. We know that Jesus Christ, after his death, burial, and resurrection, appeared to Paul, Paul who was a Jewish leader, persecuting Christians, arresting and putting to death Christians who were following Jesus Christ. That's who Paul was. And Jesus shows up and says, Paul, what are you doing? And Paul's first question and most important question is, who are you? And when he finds out that it's Jesus who had died and rose from the dead, suddenly Paul's whole life unraveled and changed. He realized the direction he was going in was completely wrong. So I think in one sense, he knows that he has been approved by God because Jesus literally chose him to be an apostle, a missionary, or a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a special way. Now, I can't claim that. You can't claim that. But I think Paul actually means this in another way as well. And that is that God approves us when we are saved by Jesus Christ. He looks at us through the lens of what Christ has done for us, sees the righteousness of Christ, gives that to us and says, you're my child. And so we have been accepted and approved by God, just as Paul, in that way. Secondly, uh, Paul says that he has been entrusted with the gospel. Paul didn't go to Thessalonica for his own purpose. He had a mission, a mission that was from God to bring the gospel to them. He wasn't just going for his own benefit. He was actually going for the glory of God and for their benefit. And his key point there at the end of verse 4, we are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. And here we see two possible directions for our faith that I talked about earlier. We can have this direction toward our our self, getting what we want, and, and we can couch that in really religious terms that make us sound very religious and self-righteous and, and fulfilled and spiritual, but underneath all of it might be an inherent selfishness. We can also have this direction of faith that is pleasing people, helping them, bringing what they need. And Paul's being accused of some of these things. But what he says is that his ultimate goal is to actually please God. Why? Because at the end of the day, he's not the judge of his own life. And at the end of the day, it's not the Thessalonians or anybody else who is the judge of Paul. Who is the judge of Paul? It is God who tests their hearts. The word here for please is interesting. A context that it would fit in would be a soldier who wants to please his superior officer. Please his superior officer in such a way that the soldier does not want to get bogged down in the affairs of things going on around him because he has a duty to fulfill. He says, I'll say no to these things because I've said yes to this thing. And I have a duty and an obligation. This is the direction of Paul's faith to please God. 
Paul also says some things that he would not do and that he had not done. He says, we never used flattery. He didn't just do what he did to get people to like him. He says, I've never covered up greed. People were saying that Paul was just out to make money. But Paul actually talks soon about how hard he worked among them, how he actually raised a lot of his own support. He says he wasn't looking for praise from other people. He wasn't just trying to get people to like him. He wasn't just trying to build a platform or get his name out there. This came up in my Sunday school class as well. And, and it's, it's interesting as the internet age has, has grown and just become part of our lives and the concept of online influencer and, and someone being popular online has grown. And I know for some of you, this isn't your world necessarily. And, and that's praise God for that. That's awesome. Um, but it is the world of a lot of people. And there is this pressure to be seen and known, to get the like, to get the view, to be that person that posts the picture that other people see or puts that quip or that quote that other people respond to and to have that growing influence. There's this pressure to get your name out there, build your platform, get a strong number of followers. Paul says, I wasn't doing that at all. And I love this because if we want to talk about influencers, like the guy wrote about half of the New Testament. We're still here 2,000 years, right? Or reading Paul's posts, right? Talk about an influencer. And do you know why he had such great influence? Because he wasn't trying to have such great influence at all. He was trying to be faithful to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It wasn't about Paul. He says he could have used his authority in this way. He could have come in and commanded them to do something, but he didn't. Instead, as we'll see, he came in and served them. And he uses this illustration here of being a child or like a child among them. He came with no pretense. The other day, my daughter Ainsley, who's 10, uh, she's nine, she'll be 10 in like two weeks, I think. Um, she's probably watching. Hi, Ainsley. She's home with a fever, so you can pray for Ainsley. Um, she, she'll be okay. But she, uh, she came with a, a fistful of, of beautiful flowers that, that we cultivate in our backyard. I think they're known as uh, dandelions. <laughs> I think that's a, the Latin word for it. Um, and she just came and she came, she's like, Daddy, aren't they? aren't they beautiful? Look at the flowers. And and I think when Paul talks about, we came to you like a child, that's kind of my picture of that. A child, there's no hidden motive. There's no secret motive there. It's like, I see something cool and I want you to see it too. I see something beautiful and I want to share it with you that you can see it as well. That's why Paul did what he did. He had found the most amazing thing in the world that it had changed his life. And he was coming to others and saying, let me tell you about this. This was Paul's reason for everything that he did. Paul lived a Godward life. His faith was not about making himself happy. It wasn't even ultimately about making others happy. It was about living for the glory of God. And now that he's brought up this idea of this childlike faith, he's going to move into a family metaphor. 
And it's amazing what we learn here about the family of faith. Paul's going to use the illustration of a nurturing, loving mother and, and a good and godly father and use that and apply it to his ministry. And, and I need to give a caution here. For some, these references are going to bring up wonderful images, I pray, of, of having a godly mother or father in your own life. And you can resonate with these and apply it to your life, and it's beautiful. For others, though, those images bring up things that are very difficult. And, and so it's, it's tempting in a passage like this when these, these metaphors are being used to just kind of tune out. Don't do that. And here's why. Because what Paul is talking about is actually not our earthly fathers and mothers. He's talking about the beauty of the new family we have in Jesus Christ within the church. And there's incredible blessing here. Let me read for us verses 7 through 12. It says, instead, we were like young children among you. And then he goes on, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked day and night in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul starts with this example of a a nursing mother. A nursing mother who cares for her child and, and understands that child needs nourishment to grow. The mother who wants their child to do well and to grow healthy and strong. And Paul says, I came to you, Thessalonians, like a nursing mother. He said, I loved you and I realized you needed to grow. You need to develop. You need to grow strong. And you needed the nourishment of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He also says that not only did he nourish them through sharing and preaching and teaching of the gospel, but through sharing his life. He didn't just show up and teach. He spent time with them. He got together and shared stories, listened to what God was doing in their lives. This was not easy. And I love that that picture of Paul. Yes, he's a man. But he said, I understood and I loved you like a mother loves her own children. He goes on then to talk about in verses 9 through 10, kind of in between these two metaphors, he talks about working hard. Paul and his companions worked hard to teach and preach the gospel, but they also worked hard to provide for themselves. We know from Acts 18 that Paul worked to make tents, and this was often in cities where he went. This is how he would make money for himself. He says, you know how hard we work to support ourselves so that we could nourish you and help you as a father, or as a mother rather, and now he's going to go into also as a father. Verses 11 to 12 talks about encouraging, comforting, and urging them. And all three of these are really similar in their application. Together they have this idea of demonstrating, teaching someone how to live. Paul's usage here of these three things together is is a father that's trying to teach 
your son or daughter and say, this is the right way to go. And sometimes that's, hey, you're doing a good job. Keep going in it. Sometimes it's pointing out the comfort along the way. Hey, you're doing a good job and here's why it's good in your life. Sometimes it's challenging them. Hey, you're going the wrong direction. Come back to this. All of that is part of what Paul's talking about under this idea of being like a father to them. I love that word urging. Get our word urgency there. There's There's an urgency to what's going on. They need to hear this. One, because there's a danger in going the wrong direction. And two, because there's a limited time. Jesus Christ is coming back. And so the father is saying to his child, I love you. Go this direction. Keep going that direction. What is it, the direction that he wants for them? To live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul never came to people and said, shape up. Do better so that God will accept you. Never did he ever say that. Paul came to people who were lost, broken, helpless, and hopeless and said to them, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for you what you could never do for yourself. He died in your place. So when he says live lives worthy of God, he's not saying do the right thing to make yourself worthy. He says Jesus Christ has died for you. He has claimed you as your as his own. Now live it out. We've got to get those in the right order or we will be really messed up in our understanding of salvation. Christian faith is always a response to what God has done, not something we do so that God will do something for us. But understand the big picture of what he's talking about here. He's saying that he's coming to these people, these people he didn't even know at first. And he's loving them like a mother should love her child or like a father should love his child. And the beauty, beautiful thing about this, and Paul talks about this in a lot of his, his letters, is that the church becomes a new family for believers. And that's good and bad. Family gets messy at times. But the positive side that he's, he's pointing out, and, and a lot of the, these people in this day, when they became believers, they would be cut off from their family. And so now they wouldn't have an earthly mother or father sometimes because they might even be disowned for trusting in Jesus Christ. But he's saying in the church... You have new fathers and new mothers that can love you in this way and nourish you and care for you and train you and teach you. Here's a challenge I want to make before we move on. Friends, you are a father or mother to other people in this church. You have the ability to have that role in other people's lives to nourish them, to teach them, to live your life as an example. Take that seriously and do it on purpose. Get together with people, especially those of you that are a little bit older and you can reach out to someone younger and just have them over for coffee. Take them out for dinner. Say, hey, what's what's Jesus doing in your life? Share stories of what God has done in your life. And for all of us, we need to understand, we also need fathers and mothers in the church. 
We need to have that humility to listen to others. And yes, sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's awkward. But to listen to others and what God has done in their life. The church is a new family of faith in the life of the believer. Finally, at the end, he comes back to the priority of God's word. Let me read for us verses 13 through 16. And we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also, uh, and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they also heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Here, Paul comes back to as he's, he's thinking about pleasing God and not pleasing people, as he's thinking about what it means for them to live, live their faith out loud, he emphasizes the priority of the authority of the word of God. In verse 13, first of all, he says, we, we thank God continually. We've talked about this before. Paul always gives God all the credit for what the Christians are doing. So he, he thanks God. But he sees in his own ministry this priority. He came to teach and preach the word of God. That's why he went to them. And, and he says, look at how they responded. You accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. Paul was not coming as a life coach and a guru to just teach them a few things to make their life better. He was coming to share the eternal word of God with them. And he says, that's how you accepted it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. It is God's word. This book is different than any other book you could possibly read, especially Alice in Wonderland. It's different. (laughs) This is the word of God, and it is truth. And Paul says he was operating under the authority of God's word. He had a mission to come and take that to them. It's a shame that so many Christians are setting this aside and then saying, let's love the world and help them. And we've taken the one thing that they absolutely need and we've said it's no longer relevant. Paul said, this is what they need. They need the word of God. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says that's how they received it in Thessalonica. They accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. Friends, that changes everything when you read your Bible. If you read it and say, hmm, do I agree with this? Do I disagree with this? Does this still apply to me today? No, it only applied to them. That's not accepting this as the word of God. You can read other books that way. You can't read this book this way. We have to read this and say, this is the very word of God. If I disagree with it, I need to first ask, am I truly understanding it? But then I need to ask the all-important question, I could be wrong. Where am I wrong? 
Let me bring this standard into my life and change where I am wrong. And he says, with great thanks to God, this is how they accepted the word of God. God's word works through someone delivering and someone receiving the word of God. And then someone has to accept it. And they accepted the word of God with the authority of God. And I wonder, as we take a look in our own hearts, would we say that that's how we accept it? Could we say in our own heart, I have accepted this as the absolute word of God? And Paul says toward the end of verse 13 there, that the word was at work in those who believe. It was effective. It was changing them. God's word makes a difference in our life. It changes our priorities. It changes our actions. When our faith is focused on pleasing God, our priorities and actions are lined up with God's word. This is an ongoing process in the life of a Christian. In verses 14 and 15, he talks about some consequences of accepting God's word. Says it changes our priorities, changes how we live, changes how we interact with the world, and changes how the world sees us. This is where a lot of people struggle. Paul gives this great encouragement. He says, you've become imitators of your, your brothers and sisters in Judea. People back in Jerusalem, people back in Israel that, that accepted Christ and were living for Jesus and said, this is great. You're doing a great job. You've become just like them. And then he says how they've become just like them. He says, you've become like them in that you are suffering for your faith. That doesn't look so great on a pamphlet trying to get someone involved. But in Jerusalem, the crowds there had cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, their Messiah. And then it's almost like they had to persecute those that said that they were wrong. Because nobody wants to hear that they're wrong. We always just want to be affirmed. And the Christians were saying, this is Jesus, the one you crucified, is God's son and is the savior of the world. And Paul used to be one of those that said, you're wrong and I won't listen to it anymore. He knows the suffering that many of them went through because he caused it. And now he's saying to the Thessalonians, you've suffered as well. You see, the persecution in Thessalonica didn't leave or just didn't end just because Paul left. It kept going. It was hard, but they kept on trusting. Trusting in the authority of the word of God puts us out of sync with the world that we live in. It has to. That doesn't mean that we're to live our lives obnoxious, going around telling everybody, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. But it does mean, as we say, I believe there is a God that created all things for his purposes. Those three things right there put us out of line with everything else. It's a completely different starting point. But Paul's motivation, as he said in verse 4, was that he was living not to please people, but to please God. And that living to please God would put him out of sync with the world. And it did the same for the Thessalonians. But at the end, he comes back and he talks about the wrath of God that's coming. Earlier, he has praised the Thessalonians for trusting in Jesus and the hope that he will come back. This is the other side of it. 
there is a judgment that is coming. And he's encouraging them. You're suffering for a while, but God knows what he's doing. And he's going to bring, bring the appropriate and just judgment. This is not easy. Following Jesus Christ is and always has been difficult. But we must keep our focus on the word of God. So in conclusion, let me just ask you, what's the direction of your faith? Is it focused on yourself and what you want, what makes you happy? Is it it focused on others and serving them? And, And that looks great. But I want to challenge you to go deeper. Because the word of God challenges us to set our focus in the direction of our faith and our lives on God himself. Living to please God rather than anything else. These core truths have never changed. And our world today, I believe, truly needs, just as theirs did back then, we need believers who have their hearts, their minds, their priorities set on Jesus Christ and the glory of God in all things. Paul suffered to bring that message to them. He suffered to bring these letters and write them and to give them so that we could have them today. And I believe that followers of Jesus Christ are now in a situation in our world where it is very possible, in fact, I would say probable, we might be suffering for our faith again. The question is, in that time, in that moment, what direction of our faith is going to be exposed? Is it going to be about us? Is it just going to be about other people so we set aside the truths of God's word? Or is it going to be about pleasing God ultimately. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that we would see this example of Paul and the example that he holds up of the Thessalonians, that we would be challenged by it. I pray that we would examine our own hearts and see the direction of our faith. There are ways in which we are people pleasers, often without meaning to or knowing it. There are also ways that that we are seeking to be selfish, the very things that Paul was accused of. And I pray that we would listen to those things and be challenged by your word. But Father, I pray ultimately that the desire of our heart would be to please you and bring glory to you. And then we would come to your word and allow your word to define what that means and what that looks like in our lives. Father, I thank you for Jesus Christ who died on the cross to save us from our sins and all who believe might be saved through him. And I pray like a child, we would, we would go through our, throughout our lives offering that and pointing to that to anyone who might take notice and say, let me share with you this incredible, beautiful truth. Father, may we be like godly fathers and mothers to one another, nourishing each other, building each other up, guiding, directing, living as examples for one another. And all under the authority of your word, accepting it as it truly is, your truth, your word, inspired and authoritative because it is from you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.